Our scripture reading for today is in Luke 4, 1 through 21. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. For forty days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man should not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hand they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was the was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue, all in the synagogue, were, fi- were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, "Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your bearing, in your hearing." We are in the time of Epiphany. This is a season in which we celebrate the unveiling of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. For 30 years, Jesus lived as a man in the city of Nazareth, growing up as a boy with his parents. We've looked three weeks ago now at how he lived in subjection to his parents, and he lived in honor to them, respect to them. He fully completed the law of God as it concerns children who honor their parents. Then we saw two weeks ago how Jesus was baptized, and John Uh, baptizes Jesus and reveals him to be the one who takes away sins and the one who is going to redeem his people. And then last week we saw how Jesus was uh, unveiled in his first public miracle that he performed, the miracle of making wine. And one of the things that we saw last week that I thought was so beautiful is not only is Christ Lord over the physical realm, that is, he turns water into wine. And yes, for those of you who may have heard otherwise, it's real wine. It's, it's not some sort of, there wasn't a little bit of wine left in a jar and then he added a bunch of water to make it watery wine. It was wine which brought a commendation. The master of ceremonies, Jesus, of course, is upholding the authority as he had done with John the Baptist. He upholds the authority of John, but then he also upholds the authority of the master of ceremonies. At this wedding, he presents this wine by the hands of the servants of the feast to the master of ceremonies. And Jesus undoes the shame on a a couple who had run out of wine, and he brings a commendation. He bestows a blessing. This is really an allegory of what the gospel is. It's not just a removal of sins. It's also the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And so he gives this wine to the master of ceremonies, and the master of ceremonies says others serve the best wine, and then when the wine that wine's had, when the people have had their full of that wine, then they serve the cheap wine. But you have sir, saved the best for last. Really, this is what Christ is doing in His mercy to us. But it shows, if you know anything about wine, it shows that He is not only Lord over matter, but He is also Lord over wisdom. It takes extreme knowledge to make wine well. Uh, there are all sorts of recipes for making wine, but the recipes for wine that they use in the best wine houses cannot be taught. 
It's something that's learned over a lifetime, and families pass down these traditions to their children. If you ever want to see a great comic movie, uh, I don't think there's anything objectionable in it, so uh, it wouldn't be bad to recommend a movie called Bottle Shock. And it's a wonderful comedy if you've never seen it and you have Netflix and you're looking for something not too terrible to watch. It's the story of how these California winemakers, these rednecks, if you will, Californian rednecks, become, uh, they, they get to the point where their wine is good enough that it's submitted in competition with the best French wines. And the French tests, uh, the French masters of wine themselves in a blind taste test choose the Californian wines as the best wines of the show. And it's, it's totally unthinkable, except for the fact that these Californian winemakers had sacrificed everything, facing destitution and investment in trying to produce something out of this wonderful dirt that is in the California valleys. And so uh, if you know anything about wine, you know that wine does not only take knowledge it takes wisdom to make it well. It also takes time. It takes time. And so Christ is making not only wine from water, which is a miracle in itself, showing that he is a master of the physical realm and can change atoms into something other than what they are, but also he makes wine that is excellent and he knows what excellent wine is. He knows how to make wine that is perfect. And so he brings this blessing where there was this shame, and that was the beginning of his glory being unveiled to Israel. So we're going to continue today looking at another aspect of the beginning of his ministry, the season of Epiphany, which is what we are in. We're now in the third week after the Epiphany of Jesus Christ as he was presented in the temple. Here we see the temptations of Jesus and how he overcomes them. For those of you who are not students of the Old Covenant scriptures, I'm going to provide as much background as I can, but I would really encourage you as we go through today, there are uh, verses on the slides, which if you don't understand a point or if you need, feel like you need more background, jot down those, those verses and look at them later. They'll provide a lot more context and a lot more justification to uh, the idea that I'm putting forth here. So Jesus Christ is unveiling himself to be the Messiah to Israel. This is an intentional thing that he's doing. And here he goes away into the wilderness and is then battling the devil. And we're going to see that in the cultural context. The temptations which Christ faces in the wilderness have a more subtle or a temptation at the foundational level. Of course, there is a temptation for hunger, to receive the kingdoms, to be his own protection, or to take matters into his own hand, to force the Father's hand. Those temptations are there, but underneath all of those temptations, we're going to look at a more subtle temptation uh, contained within them. We're going to see how Christ, in his battle of the devil in the wilderness, is the last Adam. That is, Adam was installed by God into a garden and was given a task to perform, and he failed. And Jesus Christ here overcomes the temptations of Satan and redeems that which was lost by our original parent. Jesus Christ then comes out of the wilderness speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit about the kingdom of God. We're going to look at how that is such a lost aspect of Christianity today. We've, we've truncated the message of the gospel to individual salvation and what we do in the church. When we, we've begun to believe that Christ has nothing to say to the kings, to the governors, to the politicians. He has nothing to say to art, commerce, business. We're going to look at how that's not true. The gospel includes a speaking of to all aspects of life. Everything in the created order is owned by Jesus Christ. Abraham Kuyper is most famous, probably the most famous quote. He was a Dutch theologian uh, in the 19th century, 20th century, 19th century, who, who said, there is not one square inch over the whole realm of human experience over which the risen Christ does not say mine. And it's important to begin to work a theology of Christ's lordship out into everything that you have ever seen or will see. Christ has claim on everything. And so Jesus is not just demonstrating his anointing to be the Messiah to Israel. He also in this passage is showing how he is really the culmination of the fulfillment of all God's promises and the only one who could be the ruler of everything. And so from there, we're going to look at how that affects uh, 
the nation of Israel as he demonstrates this to them in their context and how seeing what he says from the prophet Isaiah as he's reading the scroll that day, how that is expanding to include everything that Israel was supposed to be doing. And so let's get into it. Jesus Christ, as we had mentioned, had just been baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is not uh, a title that we have invented to say John was a Reformed Baptist. Um, when, when it says John the Baptist, my dad used a term earlier today, John the Baptizer. I think that's a helpful term. John, John is not a Baptist, um, although he drank no wine. Um, I'm going I'm to tone down the jokes just a little bit. John the Baptist is pronouncing judgment against the nation of Israel. He is saying that, that you have need to be washed of your sins. And I think it's a helpful thing to see when we were talking about John the Baptist. John is preaching in a zealous way, and it says that all of Jerusalem and all of Judea came to be baptized by John. And then John has this confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He sees them coming, and he says, "'Woe to you hypocrites!' He, he calls them out, you brood of vipers. He uh, didn't get many likes on that on Facebook. Um, so many of us have made an idol out of being nice. John the Baptist would definitely fail a, a homiletics course. Um, John the Baptist calls the Pharisees and Sadducees a brood of vipers. He calls them children of snakes. He, he says that they are those who come from snakes, and snakes don't have a good connotation if you know the scriptures. Uh, he identifies them as being evil. And he says, who, f- who warned you to flee from the wrath that was to come? He understands that when Christ comes and brings his kingdom, there is going to be an end to the spiritual oppression which the Pharisees and Sadducees dealt in, which they used for, for the acclamation of political and religious power over the nation. He says that there's going to be a judgment on them, not just in the ministry of Jesus Christ and his teaching, but also later, which would come in an actual wrath against the nation. John the Baptist pronounces woe against the people. You need to be washed for your sins. And then he pronounces a woe against the Pharisees and Sadducees. And we had seen how John the Baptist is living in the spirit of the prophets. We looked at Isaiah chapter 5 and Isaiah chapter 6, how there are these six woes that Isaiah pronounces against the people and against the nations around Israel for for disobeying God's law. And then in chapter 6, he sees the Lord himself. And instead of seven woes, which would be a a final woe to lay upon the nation, he then turns and he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in a peace amongst the people of unclean lips. When, when Isaiah sees the Lord, he recognizes his own sin. That is, he needs to repent before the Lord. This is what happens with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is testifying about who Jesus is and this coming kingdom of God in which sin cannot remain. And then upon seeing Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ comes, John the Baptist says, I need to be washed by you and you would come to me. And so John the Baptist is recognizing he's the greatest prophet. According to Jesus, John the, John the Baptist is the greatest prophet of, of all time, save for himself. And he points to the need for even he, the greatest prophet, to be washed by Jesus. If he, the greatest prophet, needs to be washed by Jesus, then how much more we? And so we had seen how this was the beginning of Jesus' public unveiling, at, uh, at this time of beginning his ministry. And then last week we looked at the wedding of Cana, which we had just briefly mentioned. And now here we are at the temptation. And so during his baptism, the father splits the sky with his voice. And he declares, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He declares his favor over his son before he had ever done one miracle or one act of ministry or given one sermon. The father is pleased in the son because of who the son is and how the son has been living and walking with the father. This is vital for us as those who are doing any sort of ministry or evangelism. You have to know the father's good pleasure, and this was given to us through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ is baptized and goes up full of the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. 
He goes up into the wilderness with purpose. He doesn't stumble into the wilderness. Jesus isn't deceived by the Holy Spirit. The devil doesn't trick him to coming into the wilderness. It was the Holy Spirit's desire that Jesus would go into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And I want to indicate really quickly that this is important for you to understand. These are real temptations. These are not uh, meaningless temptations. Christ is not a phantasm. That is to say that Jesus Christ is a real human being who has real human appetites. His weakness is real weakness. Now, by saying weakness, I do not mean moral deficiency of character or some imperfection in Christ's heart or defilement, but rather his physical frame is limited. It's a a body. It's a real human being here. And so Jesus Christ is faced with these temptations. Uh, Recently in our leadership meetings here at the church, people have been mentioning the idea of fasting. And so this week I decided to buy pizza because I'm weak. Even thinking, even thinking about fasting, I get hungry. Be- it, it's a real weakness that Christ face, faces. Now think about how hungry you've been before, and then think about being hungry for 40 days, and how cantankerous. In fact, the larger culture around us has this term, hangry, which is, is now this, it's a portmanteau or a combining, mashing up of two words of hungry and angry to show how fleshly, uh, we're becoming and manifest anger because we're hungry and not getting our way. Hangry, it's a great term. Um, Jesus Christ has real hunger. This is not a fantastic hunger. It's not a, a mystical hunger. It's a real human hunger, and these are real temptations. And though they're real, the temptations of hunger, the desire for authority and for protection, although those are real temptations, there's a more subtle or a temptation that's within all of these temptations. And these temptations should be examined on their own merit, but we're going to look closely just for a few minutes at what is underneath them. The root temptation which Satan uses is a doubt and a denial of Christ's sonship. He had just been declared over by the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And seeing this in context, we then are very alert as to what Satan says at the beginning of the encounter. Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. He didn't say if you're hungry. He didn't say if you want to eat. He said, if you are the son of God. And so essentially the temptation within the temptation of hunger is the temptation to doubt his father's good pleasure and to deny or to question his sonship. That is, will the father really direct me in the right way or do I need to begin to provide for myself? Do I need to rest under the Father's direction by the Holy Spirit? Did he really bring me into this wilderness to really fast, or do I need to do something about it to procure my own safety here? And so Jesus answers him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's identifying himself as the Son of God, and he's identifying himself as a true human, one who is given real hunger but understands the Father's good pleasure. Christ's experience and his knowledge of the Father's love overcomes this temptation. This is not just a mysterious thing that Jesus did. He doesn't just assert his will, but rather he says that man shall not live by bread alone. He's giving evidence that he doesn't need to doubt his position as a son. He appeals to Deuteronomy chapter 8, identifying his trial as a recapitulation of Israel's time in the wilderness. Israel had spent 40 years in the wilderness, and Moses is saying to Israel that the reason they went into the wilderness was that God wished to see if they had an unbelieving and disobedient heart in them, or if they were going to obey, and they clearly fail over and over again. The 40 years are a recapitulation or a re-summary in which Jesus Christ is showing himself as the true Israelite who is going to be victorious in the wilderness. Though God provides for them, Israel grumbles against God and lives in carnality the entire time. Even though they're given manna from heaven, quails mysteriously fly in. Imagine that. You know, someone, God is bringing them food and it just lands at their feet. And then the next day they turn around and they start to complain. 
Over and over again, God causes miracles to take place. He, he spiritually upholds their sandals. I mean, everything that God could have done, he does. And yet, over and over again, they turn away from Yahweh. They grumble against Moses, Yahweh's authority, and they uh, demand uh, harsh things from their leaders. It's a terrible scenario. Absolutely a terrible thing. So in this victory, Christ is trusting by the Spirit that the Father is going to lead him out of the wilderness at the right time. When it is time for Christ to eat, the Father will, by the Holy Spirit, direct him to eat. And this is exactly what Christ is trusting in, and that's why he's able to overcome the temptation. If he was just playing on the plane or just living on the realm of natural hunger, this temptation, he he wouldn't have seen it. And yet Christ, being aided by the Holy Spirit, is able to, because of the great love of the Father and his knowledge of what God's righteousness is, being secure in that relationship, he's able to overcome the temptation, to see the temptation within the temptation and be triumphant in it. And this is exactly what Jesus does as the last Adam. The eternal and omnipotent, only wise God created the world in six days. Each day that he made a part of the created order, he then pronounces over that day, at the end of that day, that it is good. And on the sixth day, he makes men, and he makes them, he fashions them, he forms them, and then after making man and women in his image, he then pronounces that it is very good. There's a series of goods leading to a culmination of a very good, which is described over human beings. And after making these heavens and earth, he, f- he fills them with living creatures, and he makes men, or Adam, a man, to have dominion. The Imago Dei that we love to celebrate as Christians, this doctrine of the image-bearing nature of men and women, mankind, uh, it is not something that was an afterthought. It was directly intentional in God's declaration of how he wished to make man in his image and likeness to rule on his behalf. He invests Adam and Eve with an authority, and he gives them this authority to be co-rulers or vice-regents over this realm which he had just made. He makes the world, he makes a garden, and then he places them in it. Genesis 1:26 Then God said let us make man in our image and likeness continuing thought and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the heavens over the livestock and over all the earth over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth this is including all of the created realm that Adam and Eve are going to live in they're to have dominion over this realm so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them verse 28 and God blessed them and said be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens now I want you to see clearly how the scriptures here confirm this twofold nature of the dominion God says in his own counsel in verse 26 he says within himself the father and the son and the Holy Spirit, we are peering into, uh, by uh, the writer Moses, we're peering into the understanding that God has in himself as to his purpose for creating man. Let us make man, let them have dominion. And then he announces it to them in verse 28, and God blessed them and said to them. So here he's not only being consistent with his understanding of his desire for these men and women to live and rule over the created order, he then announces it to them, makes it plain to them, and begins to give them authority. This is an amazing calling that God has given to him. So God places Adam into the garden, and he says that he's there to work it and to keep it. This is the beginning of the theology of, of dominion, the dominion mandate. That is, men are supposed to use the earth to glorify it, to give glory to God with it, and to rule over it. Adam and Eve, as we know, fell from their original calling through obeying the voice of the serpent. They were told by God to have dominion over the created order, and they were told by God to work in the garden and to keep it or to preserve it. And Adam, as soon as the serpent comes in, we know Adam has let down his guard. Adam should have known that this serpent doesn't even belong here. Their disbelief in God's word, their faithlessness, leads to disobedience. They denied God fundamentally at his voice, not in just obeying the serpent, but in obeying the serpent, they had to disobey 
God. And the reason they do that is because of a change in authority. Really, the first sin that Adam has in his heart is not to take from the tree. That is a manifestation of the much deeper sin, which is to deny, God, to deny God's authority and to deny, his, to deny his good pleasure and his wisdom in prohibiting them from that tree at the time. And so Adam here is denying the Lord's authority, and, de- and he gets to question that authority by the serpent's uh, accusation, did God really say? But rather, God knows that in the day of you eat of it, you will be like them, like him. But what did we know about, G- about God's intention to create Adam? He already was like God. Adam already was like God, and the temptation of the serpent to take from the tree is that he would attain to something that he was not. This is exactly the type of temptation that Christ uh, overcomes in the wilderness. Uh, Satan usurps authority from from Adam at this particular moment. Verse 5, Luke 4, and the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I really like engaging my imagination when I read the Bible. I think you should too. The Enlightenment has taught us to avoid our imaginations, but I think you need to meditate on this. There is something that is a little bit mysterious about this verse. Um, The devil did not have a jet in which he could move over the nations of the earth and show Jesus these kingdoms. There's something interesting going on here. I believe that this is Jesus and the devil warring in this wilderness, and that there really is a spiritual aspect to this battle that is going on. Uh, Jesus is is triumphing over the devil, and it's not just as you might see in a Jesus movie where there's this hooded figure in a black cloak. And, you know, there's something amazing going on here. There's something cosmic and spiritual going on here. And the devil here is showing him the nations. Now, by saying spiritual or cosmic, I'm not saying ethereal. I'm saying that there's an an aspect to this battle which encompasses all of God's creation. Both the spiritual and physical realms are, are at play here. In verse 6, he says, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I will. Now, we know that we do not listen to Satan or the devil as a truth teller, right? We don't just take Satan at his word that he would really uphold his end of the bargain and give that authority of the kingdoms to Jesus, but rather we do see an element of truth in that the rest of the scriptures call this Satan, this deceiver, as one who deceives the nations and the God, little g, the little God of this age. He is a power, and that power is because of sin, not because of an authority that the devil had a right to or a claim to. Satan is making this temptation not in order to assert his authority, but rather as a demonstration of that which he usurped or took without right from Adam, and then is attempting to give this as a temptation to Jesus. Jesus says to him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Christ comes as the last Adam, the one who is to restore and redeem that which was lost. In a way, not totally, but in a way, Adam and Eve really did fall from their dominion mandate. They really were unable to, in God's authority and living in perfect harmony with God as vice regents, continue to uh, work the garden and to keep it. And the reason we know that is because right after the sin, Adam is expelled from the garden. He is no longer able to work and keep the garden because he can't get in anymore. And God puts a flaming sword, which he says turns every which way to cut or to divide or to kill anyone who would seek to come back into the garden. And so Adam here is is really, he's lost an aspect of his ability to fulfill this mandate, although the mandate remains and though God knows he will redeem it. Christ here is defeating the devil at precisely that which Adam fell at. Whereas Adam sins in the garden, Christ, as the last Adam, obeys in the desert. And we know from the prophet Isaiah that God causes the deserts to become a spring. This is a picture of 
of the gospel, really, that is being worked out in Christ's life at the time. Though Adam lost everything through Christ, the whole created order is being redeemed. This shows up magnificently in Romans 8, that the very creation itself is longing for the unveiling of the sons of God. And it was subjected not with futility, but unto a purpose. That is, God wished to identify Jesus Christ as the one who redeems the whole created world. And so Jesus is the last Adam. And I want to highlight that this temptation to receive all the kingdoms is a temptation. It really is a temptation. And we know this based on the idea of hunger. Christ really was hungry. When, when some of us hear that Jesus was tempted with all the kingdoms of the earth, we, we have ab- it doesn't resonate. It doesn't click with us because we have taken Christ and his mission away from receiving all the kingdoms of the earth. And we've spiritualized it. We've done theological violence to it by saying Christ really isn't concerned with nations. He's really concerned with souls and winning souls and bringing them to heaven. But the scripture, and I want to say this patiently and lovingly as I can, the scripture in the New Testament, there really isn't a case for identifying a doctrine of Christianity as being all about dying and going to heaven. If you read the New Testament, the real identity or the real hope of Christianity is being resurrected and being redeemed in a new heavens and a new earth by which we live with our maker in a real flesh. Job says this, I know that in my flesh I will see my redeemer. I know that because my redeemer lives. This is what the hope of Christianity is, not dying and going to heaven, not escaping this earth and leaving it to rot after we leave, but rather through Christ to be part of his mission in redeeming and going to get all the nations. The reason we know we're going to get all the nations is because of what Christ tells us. Just as Christ is hungry for the bread, so also he desires every nation. In Psalm 2, the father says to the son, ask of me and I will give you the nations. The theologian Greg Bonson recently, uh, well, not recently, but now deceased for a few decades is famously quoted as saying, do you think that Christ forgot to ask? The divine son is told by the father, ask from me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. And we assume that Christ is mostly concerned with individual salvation and going to heaven or hell or potentially just saving as many as we can before it all falls apart in some cataclysmic eschatology by which the world gets darker and darker. But you must understand history. If you believe a doctrine in which the world will continue to get darker and darker, that doesn't make sense. At this time on the earth, the greatest number of Christians are living now. It it is not a dwindling religion. Our religion is growing. Our faith is spreading. And it's spreading in those places by which men and women in the church are proclaiming a bold gospel. That is, Christ is not just Lord over the spiritual realm. Christ is Lord over everything. We will see in our lifetime a revival, and we already have been seeing it in the global south, in Africa, and in Asia. And if we turn and face the battle in the West, we potentially could repent deep enough in order to redeem not only Western Christianity, but also to continue to be that great expeller or sending out of missionaries that we have been in the past. Most of Christianity's failure in our culture has come through a rejection of this aspect of the kingdom of God. We don't need to get involved in politics. That's evil and sinful. It's a necessary evil. Someone else can do that. We don't need to get involved in education or art. Those things have been used for bad purposes. We don't need to be involved with that. We have retreated from those very areas of culture, of life, which Christ is Lord over and has something to say to. And so we, like uh, good Christians should, need to repent as we see Christ saying that this is his goal. Just as Christ is not only interested in the salvation of souls, he is interested in a reformation of families, churches, education, art, commerce, finance, and government. Christ is Lord over all of those governments. To show you how big of a problem it is, just imagine what you hear when you hear the word government. 
most of you think politics. But a government is just a realm or a sphere of governing. It doesn't mean the federal government. It doesn't mean the state government or local government. Everything is a government. You are supposed to govern yourselves according to the Spirit of God and the Word of God. As families, men and women, fathers and mothers are supposed to rule their homes according to the Lordship of Christ. As churches, elders are not to rule with harshness, but rather with gentleness because of the example we have in Christ. Every realm of life is to be redeemed by our Lord. He is Lord over all of it. Modern Christian doctrine has projected the Lordship of Christ into the spiritual realm, disjointing it or hijacking it from having to do with anything on the earth. We say Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, but what we most often mean is he's King of kings in the spiritual realm or Lord of lords in the spiritual realm. Not that he has lordship over the lords and the kings who are on the earth. And the reason it's so dangerous is because there are no other kings in the spiritual realm. If he is only king of kings in a spiritual sense, who is he king of? There are no other kings but Christ in the spiritual realm. There are no other earthly powers which have achieved some sort of spiritual leadership. Christ is king over the kings of the earth, and this is why it's so important as Christians to deeply work through the scriptures to see what is he supposed to be Messiah of. In Psalm 2, as we alluded to earlier, he rules the nations, not nations who are after the second coming who have no imperfection in the, in the eschaton. This is nations now, kings now. As Christians, we err and sin in doctrine when we deny the current lordship of Christ over everything. And I say that humbly and patiently, but we do. We err and we sin because we deny that very thing which Christ has come to redeem. In Romans 13, we see Paul saying that the governor or the the state, the king, is a minister to God. And as a minister of God or a servant of God, he has an authority that he is supposed to submit to. So Christ, in his obedient death, has finally received all authority. He defeated the one who usurped Adam's original calling, and then after being raised from the dead, Christ announces to his disciples, I have received all authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth. Not just in heaven, not in just a spiritual sense. I have all authority on earth. Therefore, go into all the world make disciples of every nation, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Teach them to observe. He's kings of, king of kings and lord of lords now, and he is reigning right now, putting everything under his feet. If you are startled at all by this, read 1 Corinthians 15 and look at what the final enemy is to be defeated. In many eschatological systems, the first enemy to be defeated is death. That is, when Christ returns, he will then, then there is a resurrection from the dead, and then he judges all peoples. But actually, if you read 1 Corinthians 15, that's the final enemy to be defeated, is death. The last enemy to, to be defeated is death, which we know comes at the second coming, the resurrection of the dead, both those who die in Christ and those who do not die in Christ. That's the last enemy to be defeated. And so as Christians, when we deny his lordship and authority, uh, we do it by assuming a neutrality of any sphere of government. And again, by government, I do not mean political government. I mean every realm of life. Every realm of life has a government. Christ is Lord over all peoples, all families, all schools, all cities, all regions, local, state, county, national, kingdom, empire, what have you, and country. Christ is Lord over all of it, and he has something to say to all of it as Lord. One day through Christ, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was the promise given to Abraham. And the New Testament over and over again identifies Christians, those who've been redeemed in Christ, as the fulfillment of that promise. That is, we as believers in Christ are the very thing that the Father is doing to fulfill that promise which was given to Abraham long ago. That in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. As Lord over those realms, Christ has a word to speak to them, and his word goes forth like a sword and like a rod of iron. 
Psalm 2, it says that he will be given a rod of iron, which to dash the nations. And in Revelation, we see the word of God proceeding from Christ like a sword, dividing between that which should remain and which shouldn't. And he commands all people everywhere to repent. In Acts 17, we see Paul going to Athens, a nation, a group of people that had no history with a covenant promise of God. And Paul just walks into the city of a different country, not Israel. He just walks into their city and declares in their capital, the center of commerce, the center of art, the center of education. Athens was the the city where all the uh, philosophers lived. They had a school there, the academy. and, And he walks into their city and declares that Christ commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, Hold on, pause, pause for just a second. Fast forward to today and examine any gospel presentation you've heard today. It says, try Jesus. It says, accept Jesus into your heart, which I believe you have to do. You really do have to commune with Christ in your heart, but you need to recognize that the gospel is not just he will be savior. The gospel is Christ is Lord and right now can be your savior. But he is Lord, and he commands you to repent. It's not just we have to work up our hearers into some emotional state where they see Christ as something that can benefit their life. We do obviously proclaim and emphasize the forgiveness that is in Christ alone, the atonement which can be only by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. But you need to understand that just as much the gospel is a proclamation of the possibility of forgiveness and reconciliation as it is an announcement of God has fixed a day on which he will judge every man by appointing this judge, Jesus Christ, and he has given us great assurance of it by raising him from the dead. Therefore, he commands all people everywhere to repent. That is what the gospel is, and that is not being emphasized as it should today. And it's your job as Christians to lovingly, patiently go into all the nations and to get them. Why? Because Psalm 2 is true. Christ did ask for all the nations from the Father. He received all the nations, and we're being given the chance to be a part of his glorious people who go into every place, to the four corners of the earth, proclaiming a message that he is Lord and Savior, not just Savior alone, not just able to change your life or to fix your life or to deliver you from your problems. He is able to do that, but he also is Lord and King, and he's Lord and King now. Having defeated all the temptations of the devil, Christ returns to the land and shows that he has this authority. Now, I said earlier that it's fully manifested after the resurrection, but here Jesus steps into the synagogue and then reads from the scroll and says it's taken place. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. This is an intense thing. He went up in the power of the Spirit. He wasn't defeated. He was victorious, and he leaves with power. He goes up being directed and leaves with power, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country. Here it's being made manifest. Who is this Christ? He is the one who is coming up in power. And he taught in all their synagogues, being glorified by all. That very thing which Satan had tempted him with is a real temptation because it's really Christ's portion. Just as much as it was Christ's portion to eventually eat, so also it is Christ's portion to receive all the nations. Christ taught in all their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, I I think it's helpful to examine the scriptural words sometimes. Uh, When he is glorified by all, this is a a uh, retelling of verse 6. In Luke 4, verse 6, Satan said to Jesus, To you I will give all this authority and all their glory. For it has been delivered to me, which is a lie, it's, he usurped it, and I give it to whom I will, he doesn't. But rather, that is the temptation. And so to see here Luke saying that he was glorified by all is to say that that is what Christ's mission is about, being glorified by all. So Jesus goes up into the synagogue, and he's worshipped by everyone that he goes uh, and sees and, and speaks in front of or ministers before. And then he goes to his hometown, and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. In uh, Isaiah 
Um, I don't have the reference and I forgot. I think it's 61. Uh, Luke 4, verse 18 and 19, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now for us who don't know the Old Testament very well, this anointing is the christening of a king. And in fact, the christening is because it's the word Christos. It's, it's the one who is anointed as Messiah. He's anointed Christ as king and this king is a loving king to proclaim good news to the poor. And that doesn't just include poor in a physical sense. It's also the idea of poor in spirit, those who are downtrodden, those who are depressed, those who are oppressed. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord or the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus Christ, in his reading of this passage, then he sits down, he says, today it's uh, come to pass in your presence. And uh, there's some very interesting stuff, which was alluded to in Sunday school, which happens after this account. But I just want to focus on this really quickly. Jesus Christ says that he has the ability to cause those who are blind to see and those who are oppressed or in prison to be given liberty. It's helpful to understand that throughout all the New, uh, the New Testament miracles of Jesus, the only one that took place by Jesus that was unique to him were, is possibly two, deliverance from demons and the restoration of sight to those who are blind. Even in the Old, Old Testament, Elijah rose up the widow's son. And uh, we see a few resurrections, if you will, or resuscitations, they died again. Um, but we never see someone opening the eyes of the blind. Jesus says that he is this one anointed to proclaim the good news, to proclaim liberty and the recovery of sight to the blind. And then he says something that I think is very interesting, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Christ identifies him as the one who restores everything that was lost. If you go back and you read some of these passages in the year of Jubilee declarations, Deuteronomy 14, Exodus 23, Leviticus 25, each time that there is a mention of this year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, it's all concerned with those things which have been lost. Those things which have been lost through poverty, those things which have been lost through sickness, through divorce, those lands which were removed from their rightful owners are given back to them in the year of Jubilee. Every seven years and then every seven times seven plus one years, every 50 years, there are these times in which God has set up in his law to restore that which was lost to their original owners. This is all testifying to the authority of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm able to say that it's the year of Jubilee. And in the cultural and covenantal context of these Jewish people who knew what Jubilee was, this year of the Lord's favor, this is mighty. It shows that he is Lord over time, yes. just as much as him turning water into wine shows that he's Lord over the material realm. Jesus is Lord over time and Lord over everything. Christ declares himself, therefore, to be our kinsman redeemer. In the law of Jubilee, it was always the case that before it could be sold to a foreigner or to another person in Israel, maybe from to someone from another tribe, that piece of land had to be redeemed by someone close to that person, either through a cousin or a brother or, or whoever, someone who was a kinsman redeemer, someone who was related by clan or by tribe. And then only then, if there was no one to redeem it, it could be sold and only then temporarily because God is all about the restoration of that which is lost. Christ has the authority and power to set men free from what they owe, not only the debt of sin, which they have to God, but also their sickness and also those things which enslave them. He says that those who are bound in sin can be loosed, and those who have lost their sight can regain it. I think this is amazing, especially when you see in John, Jesus heals a man who was born blind from birth, who lost his sight, not from just his own experience, but from what true humanity was supposed to be. People have eyes which see, and he's restoring all of that, and he's declaring himself to be the one who does this. Those who have been exiled and scapegoated, that is, sent away from the people, can return to the land in which they're supposed to live. Jesus Christ is a redeemer. And so the question is, 
Not really if we believe that Christ is Lord over everything. You may have heard me describing the lordship of God and, and the kingdom of God being something that is now and coming. And you may, that may resonate with you, but you cannot come into the kingdom unless you first know Christ in this way. Before a man can come into the kingdom, he must be washed clean by Jesus Christ. So I have two questions, one that might not apply to you and one that does apply to you. The first, which applies to everyone, is do you know Christ in this way? Or have you merely been concerned with religious trappings, holding him at a distance most of your life or all of your life? Do you know Christ as one who is able? And when I ask do you know, I mean do you know in an experiential sense? Have you really seen the truth of Christ, that he is able to restore those who are blind, able to set free those who are bound and trapped by sin? In John 8, he says that those who sin are present themselves as slaves to sin. Have you experienced the liberation that comes through Jesus Christ? That's the question that you should ask yourself. And then another question, if you answer yes, are you telling anyone about it? Not only are you providing testimony as to what Jesus has done, but are you actually convinced of it so much so that you recognize the need in other people and are able to tell them about it in a clear and articulate way? One of the visions, at least for me, for 2016 that I have is to be very intentional about spreading the gospel, not just in the church, but mostly outside of the church with those who don't want to be here in church. The reason why is because Christ is Lord over everything, and he is able to save to the uttermost those who would draw near to God through him. Are you telling people about this risen Christ who you see as Lord and King of Kings, but are you able to articulate that to others? Are you bound by fear? Are you bound by a, a tongue which is not articulate? By the grace of God, lay hold of mercy in Jesus Christ, which is able to become for you that motivation, zeal, and boldness by which to declare he is King of kings, Lord of all, and is able to do all these things that he said. He is still anointed to proclaim liberty. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would allow us to be caught up with a great vision of your son. We ask you to restore to your church a wonderful understanding of the current lordship of Jesus Christ that does not begin at the second coming, but is now. We ask you, Lord, that you would speak to us those words that all authority in heaven and earth have been given to you. Therefore, we are to go. On that basis, we are to go. We pray that you would convince us of this and that it would begin to transform how we relate to other people, that we would not only be salt and light, but that we would also be gracious in their presence, that we would be telling them of a one who can redeem and restore. God, we ask that you would restore true worship to us, that we would see you like Isaiah saw you, high and lifted up, seated in your throne with your robe filling the temple, the majesty of who you are would captivate us so much that we would become like those on our face before you, crying out for mercy and boldness as we seek to go get the nations. We pray, Lord, that you would restore a vision of your kingdom and certainly of your king. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.